We have Michael Flight on today's podcast talking about shopping center investing. Definitely something that I didn't think of investing about before because I thought Amazon was going to come and destroy the industry. Makes you think that if you know your first gut reaction is to get away from something, that maybe you should take another look at it. And if you guys have a multifamily deal, you want to send it over and have me run it to my analyzer. Yeah, I'd be open to doing that for you guys. And if you guys want to uh, have me sign a non-circumvent, that's cool too. I don't plan on taking anybody's deal, but if you need or if you need to uh, have me sign that, that's cool. And if you guys are looking for a CPA or legal referral, shoot me an email at lane at simplepassivecashflow.com and I'll connect you with my guys who I use. And for those of you guys who contact us here soon, we'll be hooking you guys up with a free introduction uh, strategy session. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hey, Simple Passive cash flow listeners. Today I've got Michael Flight on the line. Hey, Michael. Hey, Lane. How you doing? It's great uh, to see you today. Yeah, thanks for joining us this morning. For those of you who don't know, Michael is has an extensive background in commercial real estate investing, principal in Concordia Realty, and they specialize in shopping plazas and retail properties. So think of those little strip malls with the grocery store and not the big ones, the shopping malls with Macy's and Nordstrom. And it's something that I've been kind of been turned on to lately, and I thought we'd bring him on and since he's the expert in this. And, and let's get to know Michael a little bit better. You know, you, you started in this way back in the 1990s. Take us back to that time when you know, you were kind of getting started in real estate. How, what was your first step into investing? Well, Lane, I actually started in the 1980s. So <laughs> my uh, first step into real estate is... I didn't our... want to date you that bad. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. Well. We, we, we started our company in 1990. No, my first step into real estate is uh, my brother, my older brother, Jeff, and I decided that for whatever reason, we went to a nothing down seminar because I think we wanted to get rich. I was still in college and he was just out of college working a straight commission job. Uh, we went to this nothing down seminar. It really, we, we figured out very soon that you needed a regular job and you, you needed other things to qualify for a loan. And so the nothing down thing didn't work. But I, <laughs> I was bitten by the bug. I had gotten a job with apartment investor and we were redoing apartment buildings in the Chicago area. And then he said to me when I was graduating from college, he said, you know, I really can't do a tremendous amount more for you. What I would recommend is you go into commercial real estate. And so whether it was brilliance or laziness, I decided to go into retail real estate because if you got a tenant, you could potentially do five to 20 deals with a tenant at a time versus knocking on a lot of doors for an office tenant or an industrial tenant. And you just do one deal and then you have to go out and get another one. So I look at it as intelligence, but it's also a lot of laziness. I didn't want to go out and, and continually uh, cold call for tenants. So that, so that that first job with the apartment guys, they were they doing like class B and C a little value add and then sell it in five years, seven years. Or... They were really buy and hold and 
what they would do is buy class B or C in uh, Chicago neighborhoods or the, the inner ring suburbs of Chicago. They would redo one apartment at a time. So as the apartments turned over, they would go in and do an extensive remodel. And they do some, you know, remodel. Their first thing to do would be to put in a laundry room and, and stuff like that. And these were, like I say, inner city stuff. They weren't suburban garden style apartment buildings. They were probably the they didn't smallest. have those back then did they <laughs> <laughs> oh they they did but uh you know in the city it, it's you know they were like 32 to 64 units you know just packed in and a lot of studios and one bedrooms so and we would go in and completely gut a place or you know just put a, a smooth coat of plaster on redo the the floors and do, redo the kitchen that type of thing and then he wouldn't go in and and do an extensive remodel on a lot of them. It was just as the things turned over, that's when he would go in and, and redo it. So I got to breathe a lot of asbestos when I was younger. So it probably took a few years off my life. Yeah. So did, when you um, did you finish college and, and did you ever like do a, like a regular day job for a while? No, I finished college and went straight into straight commission real estate commercial brokerage. So because my uh, mother was my my father. <laughs> passed away when I was a senior in college. So my mother was really worried about, you know, having money. So she said, you got to start paying rent right away. <laughs> and so I was not only doing the real estate retail brokerage, but I also had a nighttime job delivering Domino's pizzas. So. <laughs> but you went into that brokerage job kind of knowing that, you know, you saw what these other guys were doing with the apartments and did you kind of knew you were going to do the same thing with shopping centers at the time, or was it just get into the industry? I, I don't know if I, I wanted to get into the real estate industry. I think at the time, the, the real glamour job was the big office towers. In the 1980s, they were building huge office towers. So maybe at one time dreamed of maybe even being a junior Donald Trump or something. I don't know. So, but the, the glamour definitely was in commercial real estate and not necessarily in apartments or any, there's, I didn't want to do residential real estate because I had no desire to work on the weekends. So that was the other motivating factor to, to get in the commercial. Right. So. so so over the next few years, how did you transition from just being a broker to actually owning one of these shopping well, centers? Well, I worked as a broker for about two years or so. And then I was offered a job from a large national syndicator. They had, they were based out of Philadelphia. They had about 270 shopping centers nationwide. And so I started working with them as a leasing agent and eventually ended up handling the Midwest area for them and not only doing leasing, but also redevelopment, you know, some, some other things for them. Being a syndicator and based on the pre-Reagan tax changes, most of their stuff was not cash flowing properties. They were like just there was all kinds of crazy stuff because it was all about the tax write-offs. And so the majority of their properties didn't make any money. I had one shopping center, I think it was in Cahokia, Illinois. It was like way south. It had two loans on it and then it had a wrap wrapped. So it had a total of four loans on top of one shopping center that was a Kmart center in the middle of nowhere. There was some crazy stuff going on back then. That's a great way to get started, right? You're learning how to be the operator, boots in the ground. That, that's correct. I mean, I, I learned the, and I think I learned the, the most important part of 
shopping center investment, which is the leasing part, because all the income is really made on the leases. And, you, you, and since the leases do last a long time, some of them up to 20 years, you could lock yourself into a really bad lease for a long time. Or you could you know, maximize the value of your shopping center, your individual triple net single tenant thing by doing a really great lease with a tenant. And so I learned it from that way. I learned all about income. I learned about how if you just get that extra dollar per square foot, how much it changes the value of the property. And then everything kind of crashed. It was the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis. And we decided with a partner to start our own company. So we started, we formed Concordia Realty in 1990. We were doing workouts for banks, insurance companies, and uh, real estate investment trusts. And then we gradually transitioned because our goal was to, to own actually real estate, but our, our experience was in shopping centers. So our goal was to own shopping centers. And that's how we kind of ended up where we're at today. What's the term for like the guy who's boots on the ground leasing up the stuff for you guys? Because that's a big key for you now, right? Like getting that the right personnel. That- in certain markets, we'll use a leasing broker. So it's a real estate broker that is specific to that real estate market. In other situations, we use our own leasing representatives. So For example, there are certain relationships that I have that I'm still involved with. So we're in the process of doing an Old Navy right now, and I have relationships with Gap and the the Gap broker, because a lot of these guys have actual national brokers too, so it's, it's, it's a weird situation. But since I have those relationships, I'm the one that's front in dealing with them or go out to San Francisco and meet with them and say, We've got a few opportunities here. Would you guys like to do this? That type of thing. And then there's, since I've been in the the business since 1980, I've met a lot of people that might have started out in one company with with the retail leasing lot. So the retailers have their own real estate department. And so there's people that only do real estate for the retailers because their whole thing is all about expansion. And so I've had relationships with some people since the, the mid 1980s now are the heads of different departments or they're involved with different things. So I can call them up. And even, for example, a friend of mine is one of the main vice presidents of real estate at Dollar General. And so I can call him up and I can say, we're looking at a shopping center and it's got a Dollar General in it. Or I can also call him up and say, I'm looking at this shopping center. It's got a Dollar Tree or a family dollar. How do you think they do there? And you know, he can tell me basically what he thinks the market is, or he actually knows what the, the store sales are because they can track that stuff. So th- those are where the more senior real estate brokers graduate to for more stability in their job than those types of positions. It, there, it, it's really weird that most of the guys that start out on, on the real estate side, you know, stick with, you know, working with a uh, retailer. So the retailer, their real estate representatives don't make as much money as the real estate brokers, but the retailer representatives have a steady income. So it's, unless, you know, most, a lot of times the the retailers go out of business and then they've got to go get another job, (laughs) but but it's kind of a different mentality. Uh, And you don't usually see people moving from the retailer side of the equation to the landlord side of the equation. 
and it's a really weird situation. I, I, don't, I don't know why that is. Every once in a while you do. And I think the guys that do move from the retailer side to the landlord side are much better leasing people because they understand how the retailer thinks a lot better than a guy that's only done the real estate side all his life. Right. Sort of like, a, like how I'm just a government worker, want more quality of life, or like a Kaiser Permanente doctor. Yeah. Stability. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, you know, you, you've got, but you're doing the great thing. You've got the base to work off of, and then you've got extra stuff that you're working on. So it's just icing on the cake, but you still got the, the base to work with. So yeah, I should, I should have done that. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a kind of a silver handcuffs. It's not quite open, <laughs> but let's kind of get into this, this shopping center thing, because when I first connected with you, I, you know, I kind of thought what every other guy who is on the internet thinks is like, okay, Amazon is going to kill these shopping centers, right? People are just right. click a button, order it, the drone's going to come deliver it. And all these businesses are going to go out of, you know, and they're just keep building these things. But I've kind of changed my mind, right? And, you know, I think, I think if you're the, the, the saying is like, you want to be best in class in everything. There are a lot of mobile home parks out there, but if you can be the best one, you can attract the best tenants and the best terms and you can be best at class. Right, right. I see the same thing here, but maybe, maybe let's talk about some of the obvious things um, that kind of come off the top of your head and when you know, see people cringe on shopping centers. I always point out that as of 2017, internet sales were still only about 10% of total sales. And at the end of 2018, I don't know what they are, but I don't expect them to be much more than 15% of total sales. I also point out to people that Amazon bought Whole Foods, and that was a $13.7 billion acquisition. They not only did that, but they're now opening up Amazon Go stores, and they intend to open up, I think they said they want to open up three to 5,000 stores within the next five years. That's a super aggressive rollout. So I don't know if they're going to be able to get that many, but I mean, they really have all the data points. So if, right. if somebody could do it, they could do it. Right. Jeff, um, I mean, Jeff Bezos believes that brick and mortar is the place he, he needs to get to and be. And, and I also, you know, you, you take a look at what Walmart and Kroger and some of the larger guys are doing. It, to be a well-rounded retailer, you're going to want to go omni-channel versus just either straight online or, you know, straight physical presence. But a really cool thing, like both Walmart and Kroger are competing against Blue Apron by you can go online, you can order the ingredients, and then you can pick it up the same day at the Kroger store versus, you know, kind of waiting for it to come in. I don't know. I'm not exactly sure how the complete Blue Apron thing sets up. But, you know, they're, they're trying to head off a lot of that what some of those other guys are doing in terms of sales. The other stuff that I see is there's a, a lot of tenants that are, um, that don't really are, aren't influenced by internet. So for example, Ross stores, Ross and to a certain extent, dollar general family dollar and those guys cater to a lower income customer. A lot of those people either paying cash or paying debit cards and they don't actually have credit cards. And so a lot of those people actually aren't using and doing things on the internet. So I think 
a lot of people that are in New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, and or else in tech businesses are used to doing everything online. But there's this really wide array of people out there that don't do a whole lot of online. And then you've got places like the middle of Indiana where it's really expensive for Amazon to, to ship something because they don't have the footprint versus if somebody actually goes online and wants to buy something from Walmart, I think Walmart most recent statistic is they have a store within, I think five to 10 miles of 90% of the population in the United States. So if you're looking to, you know, do an omni-channel presence, they've, they've got it. The next thing that I explain to people is, is that the Wayfair versus South Dakota decision, which was all about collecting sales taxes, is dramatically going to impact a lot of retailers because they're going to, even if they don't hit the threshold of selling 200, uh, 200 sales or I, I forget what the dollar amount is, $100,000 in sales, they're still going to have to track all those sales just in case they go over. And so it's going to be an extra nightmare and they're not going to have flexibility to say, oh, you know, you don't have to pay sales taxes anymore. And Amazon, like a headquarters is in a location and they, they got to collect, or if you live in that state with the headquarters or any, the, the new ruling that just came out this year, any state in the country, they, if you're selling into it, you there, you're automatically required to collect sales taxes. Now, like I say, the, the Supreme Court had certain threshold limits, so they limited it to, like, you have to sell over 200 transactions per year. For the most part, it means that all people selling on the internet in the United States into an individual state that has a sales tax has to start collecting sales taxes. So that, that's going to be a big issue. And then, you know, shipping is a big issue. So it, it, you make more money selling in a physical store than you do online there's just and there's less returns right i like so, that i like that statistic of like still only 10 percent are buying it online yeah and just to to address i think the biggest thing is is that the news media equates all the tenant bankruptcies with online but most of the tenant bankruptcies are really about you know financial structuring. So the most recent one, Sears. Sears didn't have a reason to be in business for the last 20 years. I mean, Sears <laughs> uh, really should have. When I, I, you know, they keep saying Eddie Lambert is this genius, but as soon as he bought a giant position in Sears back, you know, I think 15 years ago or so, he should have just like started closing down stores left and right and redeveloping them as high-end retail because he would have made a ton more money. And he could have like wound down, he could have sold off the Sears diehard brand and the Sears, I forget what the tools are called, but in Kenmore, he could have sold off all that stuff. The thing was more valuable for the parts. And then we go to Toys R Us. Toys R Us was losing sales volume to Walmart and Target way more than they were losing sales volume to online retailers. Toys R Us couldn't compete because they had gone through a few leverage buyouts and so they had all this debt that they were trying to service. And so they weren't putting any money into an internet strategy and they certainly weren't putting any money into their stores. And so instead of being a place where people could go and have a great experience and say, oh, I want to go there with my kids and I want to buy this stuff and I've got 
They've got a wide selection. You go in there and there's a bunch of screaming kids and there's stuff all over the place. And there's like, you know, young guys, you know, or young women working there that don't care. And it's like, so it's like, well, do I really want to go here? Or can I just go get this, you know, stuff as long as I'm at Walmart or Target? Yeah, it, it looks like the guests are with all this crap all over the place. Right. 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 So, so, you know, that, that was the main reason why, you know, Toys R Us is no longer in business. And then we can go to department stores. There's really no reason to go to a department store anymore because, you know, that all started kind of hollowing out because they're specialty stores, you know? And so if you're going to go get in, not that, you know, department stores ever carried that stuff, but if you're going to go to, a pet store, you're going to go to PetSmart, or you're going to go to Petco, or you're going to go to one of these places, or, you know, order some of the stuff online. But right. yeah, try it on and see what, yeah. what size fits you best, and then go on. Right. So I, I think we're going to see the disappearance of most department stores. I, I, I think that Nordstrom really has it together so far. So I think Nordstrom will be around. The high end, uh, the high end, but the middle is disappearing. Yeah. Well, that's the biggest issue. They, that's the other thing. Is I'm, retail is really bifurcated now. And so it's either low end or high end. And so if you're anywhere in the middle and you're catering like Kohl's, I think Kohl's is going to have a real problem. I'm not sure that Kohl's is going to be around for a long time. They might turn it around. But if you're a dollar store, you're Aldi, you're a discount grocery store, or you know some sort of specialty food store in the grocery, or you're a Whole Foods, you're, you're doing very well. If you're just catering to the general masses, got to do something to differentiate yourself. Right, right. I mean, the high end will be fine, like the Nordstroms, the, the Bloomingdale's. But. I believe so. I believe so. You know, I, and I think, you know, even the high end specialty stores, like I was just in out in California and Fashion Island or, you know, some of the other malls out there, they're just doing gangbusters. And it's because all they have to do is sell like one or two shoes, you know, like Jimmy Choo. Jimmy Choo's shoes are like, you know, $5,000. All they have to do is sell like one or two per day. And the margin on that is like incredible. It was like, it can't cost more than a hundred bucks to make one of those shoes, yeah. but they're selling it for $5,000. Yeah. If Jimmy Choo gets a lot of money. I don't know who that is, but I think I think they're saying like like Macy's like they rely on all these stupid sales right and these coupons and right right which was the same problem with JCPenney it's the same problem with Sears I mean they've trained their customers to come in only during a sale so it's an issue you know instead of being everyday promotional I'm super excited about a new program I'm rolling out that's going to reinvent scammy real estate education programs so excited, like Marie Kondo cleaning stuff up excited. Announcing my new mastermind program, which consists of a closed member site with 27 packed weeks of content, plus bi-weekly group video conference calls to ask whatever. Half of the calls will be centered around granular investing tactics, and the other half will be holistic wealth building strategies that I have learned from the wealthy. That's 25 plus hours of group coaching and masterminding, and a secret Facebook group too. I know what you're thinking. Not another flipping Facebook group. Well, this one's going to be different, more intimate, exclusive, and no cheapskates or shady vendors in it. I've been coaching individual clients over the past couple years, and I figured out what you guys need and a way to provide it in a cost-effective way. Learn more, go to simplepassivecashflow.com backslash journey and join before the first cohort fills up and the introductory pricing goes away.
so we've, we've kind of bashed uh, shopping malls. I guess let's differentiate, right? Shopping malls are like kind of the more big box ones where the shopping centers are the ones that we're looking to. Well, I'll differentiate it. A shopping mall is typically an enclosed shopping center. So it typically has a roof. It has air conditioning and you, there's the parking lot completely around the shopping center. And then, you know, the stores and it's typically got department stores. And so that's a shopping mall. Every once in a while, there's open air shopping malls. Uh, you'll see those out like in California or some other places, or there's one in the town that, that our offices are in. Oak Brook Shopping Center is an open but normally you don't see that in a place where there's snow. And then there's what we call strip centers, which is the open air centers, which has the parking in the front, people park, and then you can walk into the store in the front. And so that's the differentiation. You've either got a, a strip center or you've got a mall, and then you've got a few hybrid things. Like you've got, there's trying to remember what the name of them are now. Um, I, I'm blanking on it, but there's different things where it village center type of a thing where they've got mall specialty stores, but no department stores. And those are typically outside. And so there's, yeah, what, what, would you, what would you call those? Like in they've got Best Buy. That would be a power center if it's got like a bunch of anchor tenants in it. So if it's got like a Best Buy, a PetSmart and what we call category killer tenants, that, that would be more along the lines of what, what would be called a power center. And then a smaller center with like a 7-Eleven would be called a convenience center. A grocery anchored center would be more what's called a neighborhood shopping center. And then if you've got like a, a Walmart or a Target and a grocery store, that would be called a community center. And then you get up into a regional shopping center where like a regional mall should draw from at least five miles. And some of them draw from around 10 miles and you just draw a radius around, you know, and that's the population. So, so it can the, be, I'm sorry. The regional go. malls would be no go in your opinion for a mom and pa investor. A regional mall is something that you have to have an insane amount of experience. So, so you've got the, most of the regional mall owners are publicly traded. There's a few guys that are buying other regional malls, but the largest regional mall owner is, is Simon Properties. They're publicly traded. The best regional mall developer and owner is Taubman Properties. They're publicly traded. That's Alfred Taubman who started that. There's also a, a regional, a few regional ones like CBL and uh, some other ones. CBL is in trouble right now because they're all middle market malls and they're smaller malls versus Simon has some big things. The other one that was just bought up, Brookfield, which is a company out of Canada, bought General Growth Properties. And so General Growth Properties was the second largest mall company, and Brookfield Asset Management just bought them. General Growth has, uh, what's it, Mauna Loa out there? Yeah, the, yeah, pretty big one. Yeah, and General Growth also owns Oak Brook Shopping Center here, which is like a, a million square foot plus mall. Taubman Centers owns in, in this area, or Taubman Centers owns the, the Beverly Center, which is a, just a dynamic shopping center. And they also own here Woodfield Shopping Center. Woodfield has a trade area of probably close to four states because it's the second highest tourist destination in the state of Illinois. And it's drawing people 
that because there are no Nordstroms, there are no, you know, some of the higher end stores in some of these other states like Iowa, Indiana, and Wisconsin. So it's it's pulling people. And then if people come here, they'll they'll go out there because that's like a two and a half million square foot mall. So that's probably a no-go for your average investor starting out. Yeah. So where should the sophisticated mom pa investor go? Is it just that neighborhood? I would say the, the neighborhood or, or the convenience. I have a, some issues with the convenience shopping center because if it's an unanchored shopping center, you're ending up competing more on price with rent than you are with some sort of tenant mix versus if you go with grocery anchored center or a community center, which has like a, a Walmart and stuff, you can also, you're competing on, you know, hey, I've put together a good tenant mix here. And so it's a destination. People are coming here so you can afford to pay a little more money. Uh, so it's kind of like get, get away from like the low end stuff. Like don't buy D-class rentals. Just get a little bit better than the bottom. And now you can compete with better tenants. To a certain extent, but I, I would, would actually go with, you know, like a convenience center that's anchored by a dollar store because there's a draw versus if you just have a convenience. For example, there's a lot of stuff for sale right now in Las Vegas, and they want an insane amount of money per square foot for it. The anchor tenants are like a mobile phone place, uh, a vape shop, and a smoke shop, and then, you know, like some little local <laughs> casino. And, you know, they want you to pay like 300 bucks a foot for it. It's like, uh, no, I don't think this makes sense. So versus I can buy a pretty well anchored shopping center in certain parts of the country, like we're looking at a deal in Reno, Nevada, and we're looking at buying a grocery anchored shopping center, which is around 280,000 square feet. And that's $100 per square foot. So do I want to buy a crazy shopping center in Las Vegas that, you know, the main tenant is a smoke shop and a bake shop? Or do I want to buy a grocery anchored center that has a combination of pretty good tenants in it for $100 a foot? Yeah. So do you, when you buy it, are you, I mean, you obviously want to buy it with value add, but do you buy it with that anchor tenant in place? Or is that what you're bringing in? If there is no, uh, on the one that we're looking at in Reno, it has an anchor tenant in place, but it also has a 50,000 square foot bacon anchor. So that's why it's available for a less expensive price. There are certain places like we're, we're looking at deals down Indiana. There's another one in Michigan and another one in Cleveland where you can buy a grocery anchored center where there's not a bunch of stuff to do except, you know, leasing up a few vacants. And you can get those for around $100 per square foot. And we prefer to buy uh, below replacement cost. And so right now in most parts of the United States, it's at least 100 to 125 per square foot to build a new shopping center. And in a, most metro markets, it's up above $150 a square foot to buy, to build a shopping center. So if you can get a well-located piece of property and you can be in the $100 per square foot or below, or in a major metro area, if you can buy it at 120 to $150 per square foot, we think that's a that that's more of what we're looking for versus cap rates. Right. What, are, what are like the rental rent per square foot? 
what are the, the typical averages there are? It's really hard to, to say because it really depending on what type of shopping center it is and also what the population around it is. So we have a shopping center right outside of Chicago that has really extreme population densities. And the, on the smaller shop space, we can get up to $40 per square foot. And on the, the larger junior anchor tenants, and that's with, with everything. So that's real estate taxes, rent, common area maintenance. So the, the tenant is probably paying close to $30 or $30 per square foot. And the extra charges are around $10 per square foot in that particular location. And then you can go outside to like, you know, Indiana, like Indianapolis or Cleveland or some of those places. And your average rent, you know, might be somewhere in the, the, uh, eight to 10 to $12 per square foot. So it really depends on the income surrounding the area and also the population density. Yeah. So that's about 10 times, what, you know, more, way more than 10 times what you'd be getting with residential real estate. I think a lot of our stuff is like hovering around 80 cents to a dollar a square foot. Yeah. Well, and, and then certain like the malls, like if you get a really good mall, like Mauna Loa mall, if you get a small shop space in there, some of those tenants are paying more than 200 to $300 per square foot. On New York's Fifth Avenue, there's tenants that are paying up above 1000 bucks a foot. So it's just a, a matter of how much business they can do. And, and now explain to me, like a lot of like the, the reason you go commercial retail is that not, as opposed to residential real, real estate where you've got a tenant there, they're just paying and they can just often leave you sort of get collateral on your commercial tenants, right? Maybe explain how that works. Um, you don't necessarily have collateral. I mean, we, we do get personal guarantees from the, the local tenants and we do work with publicly traded companies. So the last thing, you know, McDonald's is going to do is have a late payment because that's really going to affect their stock price. So, so I, I can tell you that McDonald's, Walgreens, you know, Ross, TJ Maxx, and those guys, they're sending in ACH payments and you're getting the rent three to five days before it's first of the month. And it's like clockwork. Now they will argue with you about what's called common area charges and they'll come back and say, well, you're billing us too much for this. And there, there's that kind of thing. So that's a, a management headache. You, you're never going to like worry about getting the rent unless the tenant is in financial problems. And you're, there's a lot of, I should say, there's some pretty huge warning signs whether a tenant's gonna file for bankruptcy or not, at least a year before you know that they're gonna you know, file. And then if they do skip a rent payment, that means they're definitely filing because they don't have to pay pre-petition rent. So they'll right. you typically skip one or two months. So a lot of these, when you lease these guys up, are they on that triple net lease thing? Uh, we all are, so, one of the value add strategies is we like to find, but you don't find them that much anymore, shopping centers that are on what's called gross leases. And so that means the tenant just pays one check and they don't pay their share of real estate taxes or common area maintenance. And if those leases are short-term leases, then as they roll over, we can switch them out and convert them to a triple net lease. And that protects the 
income stream for the landlord because if the real estate taxes or the expenses go up, tenants paying for those. And so the, the landlord isn't getting hit by the electricity costs go up or residential real estate, the, the gas prices for heating the place goes up. So that's one of the one of the things we like about retail real estate is is that when you do the lease, you're pretty much if you do a triple net lease, you know what kind of know what your upside is, but you also know what your downside is that you're you know it's not going to eat into it. And, and both parties want that the tenant and the, the landlord they both kind of want that stability. The tenant wants it because the tenant wants a little bit of control over what they have, and the tenant then the tenant doesn't have to hassle with it. The other reason why the tenant pay into common area maintenance is, is that they want the entire shopping center looking nice. So McDonald's doesn't want to be in a shopping center where they're paying to pick up their area, the parking lot, but the rest of it, or this is the big thing in, in the northern climates, is you want the entire parking lot plowed. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> if they're if McDonald's or Walgreens or some other tenant is out on the out parcel, you normally have to go through the entrances to get into those particular stores. So you want the entire parking lot plowed so that customers can get to you. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> so one, one fallacy I think that I see some investors looking at is they want to have a, a shopping mall that's all triple net, right? Because they hear about it all the time. Oh, did you hear about this triple net? Triple net, you know, <laughs> it's like turnkey, right? Turnkey right. commercial real estate. Right. But in actuality, there's no value add in there, right? So you're buying sort of like a turnkey rental. And the only place for that thing to go is like, now you lose your turn, your turnkey tenants. Well, you also have to be careful because it's best exemplified by single tenant triple, niece, triple net leases. You could be buying a, let's say a dollar general, and they'll say, oh, it's a, it's a full triple net. Well, on a lot of those leases, you still have to, the landlord has to maintain the um, structure in the roof. And sometimes the landlord has to place if the um, HVAC goes. So you need to clarify that it is full, completely triple net, and the tenant is also paying for this. Because in a shopping center, the tenants don't pay for their roof. The tenants don't pay for the replacement of the HVAC. They have to maintain the HVAC, and they have to like have a maintenance contract on it. But if your main compressor goes out on your air conditioner, the tenants in typically the leases are written that the landlord has to pay for that. So it's not full, completely triple net. The one place where you will get that is in a ground lease. So a ground lease, the tenant actually builds their store, they maintain their store, they maintain everything, and they just send you a lease. Ground leases, they typically pay less. So if I was a developer and I built the store for the tenant, I would be adding in the cost of building it. And then I would be adding in an 11 to 12% return on my cost for that. And so, so I would be getting not only lease for the ground, but I'd also be getting an extra additional rent for the building. So those end up being worth more. But if you're looking for a complete hassle-free, a ground lease is the way to go. But it's basically like buying a bond. There isn't going to be a tremendous amount of upside. The upside would be if there's cap rate compression. So if you bought something that was in the path of growth, and like let's go, for example, a Walgreens, and you paid a 6%, and then all of a sudden path of growth comes out, and it's like, oh, this is like high-density area. 
you know, the cap rate might go down to like 5% or 4.5%. So, but that also all depends on interest rates. Right. Right. I mean, I, I think people, they look for these low risk investments, like performing notes. Right. It's like, yeah, you're not really making much on that. You might as well go buy a savings bond. Most things are sort of risk adjusted. Right? Yeah. I think you're making a little more than a, a savings bond. So it's, <laughs> you also could theoretically take your money out of a bank at any time. So it, it's, I, I look at it more like getting a higher paying CD. So, cause you're in it for, and then there's transaction costs. Right. I mean, how, how are the cap rates in shopping centers compared to with like other asset classes like apartments, single family, mobile home parks? I don't know. I, I can tell you how they compare to apartments and I can tell you how they compare to industrial and uh, office buildings. I don't know uh, what cap rates are for, for mobile home parks, but cap rates right now for well-located grocery anchor shopping centers are anywhere from six and they've been going up to around seven to seven and a half percent. And we've seen certain in, in certain markets stuff not trading. And so it's, it's kicking up to around 8%. And then we've seen some slightly distress, distress deals that we think we could fix for around 10%. And then if it's a straight triple net lease with a real qual, what we call bond quality tenant, that would be if you were doing a triple net lease with a Walmart or a Kroger or a Walgreens. A Starbucks or... Yeah, a, a Starbucks that, that was company owned. Those things can go for, as it, I've seen them, you know, in California as low as four, four and a half cap. But typically the, the cap rates have been inching up and your average cap rate, the single tenant triple nets are, are probably somewhere right now in the 6% range. And we're like a, you know, just a strong, a strong company, like a family dollar, but in a little rougher class of a neighborhood, that would be like a, <laughs> half a point higher than? Or? A little bit higher than that. Yeah. yeah. So if it's a, if it's a rough neighborhood, they, there's a, a risk adjustment for just where it is because you're not going to get any appreciation on it. So if I bought a family dollar on the South side of Chicago, I'm expecting that I'm not going to get a huge amount of appreciation. So I better be just getting a pretty good return on my investment straight out and hope that I'm going to get my capital back and, you know, make a return on it. And, and you know, the uh, cap rates is just one half of it. The other half is the, in, the interest that what kind of debt are you able to put on these things? Is there any Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac products or? No, the, the debt is typically amortized over 20, 25. You don't usually see 30 year amortizations. And then the debt normally only extends, so the term is only about 10 years. So you're seeing five, seven, or 10-year debt. You typically won't see a fully amortizing loan on a piece of commercial real estate. A lot of the debt is CMBS debt, uh, which is commercial mortgage-backed securities, or we just did a, a $18 million loan with State Farm on a um, 300,000 square foot community shopping center. All those and, insurance companies are better than, than. Oh yeah. That, that was a, the interest rate on, it's a 10 year loan. And the interest rate on that one was 3.8%. And it's amortized over 25 years with the first year interest only because we had some, we, we were replacing an anchor tenant. Are these non-recourse for you guys? Is this a- uh, well, I, I've only, 
in the past 25 years, I've only done one fully non-recourse loan. And that was because the loan to value was 35%. And so there's always in commercial real estate going to be what they call carve outs for the bad boy clauses. So if you commit fraud, if there's environmental issues, what's the other one? If you commit waste, so if you don't take care of the property or you deliberately, then there'll be personal recourse. But other than that, if you know stuff just doesn't go right and you do everything that you're supposed to do according to the loan, there is no recourse. You can just mail back the keys. And that's a that's a component off the CMBS loan or the insurance company. They'll they'll write that in. Yeah, most commercial loans they're going to have some sort of as I said, bad by carbots for the for recourse. But they're for all intents and purposes, as long as you you don't like deliberately commit fraud and steal things, or you don't do things that you're supposed to, or unfortunately, if there's a environmental problem, they will come after you for the full amount. So what do you think of, mentioned you've worked with institutional investors in the past. I work with a lot of private equity. How, how is it different than private working with regular people, working with these bigger, bigger players? Some, some feedback I've heard is that, you know, the institutions, they want a lot of control in your operations. Is that what you're seeing on your end? That's the main issue. Number one, you're dealing with really sophisticated investors. So they, broadly speaking, all about real estate investment. And some of these guys are like, you know, what I call rocket scientists in terms of financing. So they, they really know how to structure finance like you wouldn't believe. They're not as deep into the operations part of it, but from a, a general level thing, they can take a look and, and we will present a business plan. They'll say, well, what about this, 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 and this? And, you know, why didn't you do this? Or how about this guy over here? And so they're actually involved to a much larger uh, amount of control. They'll also, as part of the joint venture agreement, if they're putting money into it, they have the right to replace you. So if things aren't going well, they can come in and say, we're going to boot you out and we're going to put somebody else in because you're not executing on the plan. And then the other issue is a lot of them are not long-term holders. They want to be in and in three years be out because especially a lot of the private equity funds, they're raising money in five-year spans. And so by the time they get to your investment, they've already been raising money for about a year. And so they want to be out of your deal in three years so that they can close their fund at the end of five years. So so what are you in thinking in terms of like markets? Do you like primary, secondary, or tertiary? Or does it not matter, I guess? Asset class. We're, we're more opportunistic, but I, I really do like tertiary markets a lot better. I think some of the, the primary markets are, are really super overvalued right now. So I think there's much better deals in other smaller markets. For example, uh, we are looking at a few deals in Indianapolis. We, we actually just wrote an offer on a deal in Indianapolis. It's a Kroger anchored center. It's what was it? Uh, $82 per square foot. It, it's in a great area. It's just that Indianapolis isn't really valued as highly. And then we're looking at a deal in um, Phoenix, Arizona. That's a Fry's Anchor Shopping Center, which is owned by Kroger's. And that one is close to 180 bucks a foot. Wow. 
So, but you've got a, a, a higher income in Phoenix and you've got higher density surrounding that shopping center in Phoenix. Plus the other thing is you've got a lot more investors coming in from California and California prices are just like crazy. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking here and, you know, I'm always trying to find something other than an apartment. Some kind of an apartment operator refugee. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm looking at assisted living and retail shopping is another one just because it seems like I can just find a good broker and they kind of manage things for me. They, they all the value add or things that I can kind of oversee and have management oversight on. I don't know why I'm thinking at assisted living. That seems like the opposite end of the management headache spectrum. Well, but if, if you've got somebody that's managing it, I can see why know a whole lot about it, but it certainly is a super huge growth market. I mean, the, the amount of people that are going to be, have already retired and are retiring that are my age, I'm the last year of the baby boom. Over the next few years, there's just like this giant amount of people retiring. So that's just going to be a super growth market if you can get the right operator in it. But I, I think it's all about operations. And I would say it's the same thing with you know, retail. You have to know a little bit about merchandising a shopping center and what a good location is, which I think is all you, you can figure out, but you still need somebody to execute a little bit on it. And then, you know, once you get some experience in it, I think it'll be, it, it's something that people can figure out. Where versus, I don't know much about mobile home parks, but self-storage, mobile home, and apartments are, are seem pretty easy to get into because it's Everybody kind of lives in a home, so they kind of know what a house needs. And self-storage, it's like, well, it's a mini warehouse, and people come up. And I think that's all about marketing it. And so I think, you know, those are something that the average investor can get their mind around versus once you get into specialty commercial real estate, like offices, like shopping centers, or as you say, assisted living or, or anything to do with, you know, healthcare. Right. Right. I mean, shop, shopping malls are kind of appealing because they're everywhere. I mean, I've looked at stuff here in Hawaii and unfortunately I think it's just a primary market plus here we've got these smaller, you know, like grocery um, anchored centers and it's owned by like an international group. So I don't know if that's a trend, that's a trend here that, you know, just international groups, they just want to launder their money at 2% a year. It seems well, like. it's really tough to, I mean, cause Hawaii is, is tough to get into. It's, it's kind of like buying a shopping center in Florida because and I'm not making a racial statement, but you've got all these Jewish guys from New York that were all like super huge, you know, real estate operators and all of them want to retire down in Florida. So every time they go down to Florida, they look like, oh, I could buy a shopping center here and then I can just expense right. it. Like know? all the in- Indianapolis guys are like, oh, these idiot California and Hawaii investors are like buying stuff here. <laughs> we can't- right, because, you know, the California and Hawaiian guys are selling stuff at a three cap and a four cap. And you can buy you know, something in Indianapolis for a seven or a 10 cap and still have money left over. Right. Hopefully a lot of them just go to Vegas because they think they're going to get rich at the Raiders. (laughs) (laughs) We really like the Vegas market. We had a deal there a few years back and I was just talking to a a broker that we've done business with. He's out of Phoenix, but he also does stuff in uh, Vegas. I had uh, asked him about a property that he was marketing and 
again, it was like this not really well anchored shopping center and it was like 230 bucks a foot. And I just said, that's a little too pricey for me. I said, I really should have bought something. I should have bought everything I saw five to six years ago. And he, he just replies back, we all should have. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think about these? I'm looking at these secondary market office space buildings. Like think of like office space and places where if you live out in the suburbs, instead of driving an hour, hour half to this big city, you go to like Scranton. Pennsylvania, and you, and you got 20 minutes to the local Class A office building. I personally wouldn't get involved with it. I've, I've owned office buildings. In office buildings, you're competing solely on price. You have to have certain amenities. When the tenants turn over, you end up putting in tenant improvement allowance. You end up putting tenant improvement allowance in retail too, but you you don't have as many national tenants. It's more of a commodity then, as opposed to like all this other stuff we try and do. It's more of a fragmented market. So you can kind of... It is, it is. You're, you're, you know, doing a lot of one-off deals versus if you have a relationship with in retail, I, I can, I can call up the guy from Gap, whether I've got a shopping center here in Chicago or whether I've got one in Texas or whether I've got one in California and say, are you interested in these? versus buying something in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which I, I wouldn't do that anyways because of the growth. If I, I was looking to buy in a tertiary market for office space, I would actually look at Las Vegas. You could get some pretty good per square foot prices in Las Vegas on, on office buildings. And it's a growth market. There's a lot of people like leaving California and relocating. And I think one of the plays, I, I I'm not the guy to do it, but you should just set up, you know, one of those companies like they have in Delaware, where they just are the office space for all the corporations, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It's so like, cause there's a few buildings in Delaware cause Delaware is like a good place to, and so it's like, there's like a thousand to 5,000 corporations all domiciled in that one building, <laughs> you know? So, and you could do that in Las Vegas for all the people trying to escape California. <laughs> So what's something that, you know, me as the apartment refugee should try and do if I wanted to get into the, the retail shopping space? I mean, is there like a boot camp to go to? Do I just have to like come and find you one of these days and just buy your lunch and dinner and breakfast for a day <laughs> and just like pick your brain or what, what's someone like I should do? I think one of the things you could do is decide what market you want to go into and and learn the market, develop a relationship with not only a leasing broker, but also a sales broker. So if I were you, I'd say, well, I'm going to concentrate. I really like Phoenix or I really like San Antonio. And I'm going to learn everything about that because you have to learn how a market operates first. So you need to know what trade areas are, how what shopping centers are in what area and you need to know what the competition is. And then once you get that basic, you know, understanding of that, then you can pretty much take that anywhere in the country. Like I can, I was just talking to somebody the other day and they're like, well, how do you know about all these different markets? I'm like, well, I can drop in, I can parachute into like Reno, Nevada and know everything there is to know about the trade area within half a day. Cause I can tell you where just by, I look on Google where all the major intersections are and then I just drive them and then I can, I can figure out the rest of it because I, I have that experience. 
So, and you can get that experience just by learning a little bit about that. I would also recommend they have different deals that come through from either syndicators or on the, the crowdfunding websites. I think the crowdfunding websites, I'm, I haven't been impressed with the shopping centers on there. And I've actually talked with a few individual investors that have been interested in investing with me. And we've gone through a few deals on the crowdfunding websites, just so I could show them what to look for and what not to look for. But if you, the nice thing about the crowdfunding websites is they do have the videos and they have the stuff that you can take a look at. And so I think it's an educational once they do like a webinar on what they're looking at. Another good webinar that I saw, um, you, you might know him, Eric Tate. Yeah. Just did a, uh, a syndication on a property down in Houston. He, he put together a really nice webinar that's, that's very informative, just as a general overview of that particular investment, but how you would look at investing in a shopping center total. So do you, if you weren't investing in shopping centers and you were just being an LP, what would you be? What asset class would you look key on these days? I, I do like the apartment story just because, you know, I think there, there's still room to run, but I do, it, it's really scary. I think that apartments are way overpriced. It, I don't know when the correction's coming, but if I was doing apartments, I'd go into some of the smaller tertiary markets and, and take a look at those. All right. Well, I think kind of wrapping up here, Michael, you know, just kind of to close out, like my, my opinion on these things is, you know, at first, you know, I thought Amazon was going to come and kill the shopping center. But now that I think about it, in my strange lifestyle where I typically don't leave my house and, you know, I just go to work, I just stay in this like two to one mile radius of my house where my gym is at. I mean, I do go to these neighborhood shopping malls quite often, go to, go to the grocery store, go to get something to eat, go to the doctor's office here. And I, I do see like, I would use them. I would, I would stay away from like the big shopping malls. Like it's like the bubonic plague or something like that. But. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I, I, I agree with you. Like, cause a lot of the middle market malls are, are going to, be like scraped. I mean, we, we did operate three malls in our experience and in two of those malls, we ended up emptying them out and demolishing them and, and building something else. So that's kind of my opinion of a, an enclosed mall, unless it's a really good mall. And then you bring up a good point. Shopping centers are also kind of like community meeting places. So if you've got like food in there, if you've got places where people can sit or you go and like hang out or that's, you know, retailing does. We've added in some of our shopping centers artwork so that draws, it, it's like a little bit of a difference. And so, especially if it's interesting to kids, you know, parents will bring their kids there and say, oh, you want to go see the ball machine? And then, you know, they'll bring them to that shopping center versus the shopping center across the street because it'll give the kids something to do or it's an attraction. Or a few of the shopping centers, we've added wind turbines, even though they don't really do anything in terms of generating electricity. They're kind of like kinetic and their artwork and people say, oh, you guys are doing something. That's great that you put the wind turbines up there. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, if there's anything I learned from a couple of years being a, a city engineers, you know, I think the old school way of designing cities is like where you got like this grid system where it's all like that. Now it's sort of like 
a few streets and it goes to like a main street, but then it goes to your community shopping center. And then, you know, just in general, people will see it on their main arterial coming into town off the freeway. You might have two to three lanes. Now those two to three lanes, instead of like 12, 13 foot lanes, now they're 11 and a half. They're smaller and there's a little bit more trees in there. There's, they probably put the bike lane in there just to get the cars from going. The speed limit is still 35, but people go 45, 50 on those things. But now right. they're trying to get it lower to get more of that neighborhood feel. And then that shopping, the smaller shopping centers are kind of also part of all that. Well, you should come out and visit me because I live in Riverside, which was the first planned community in the United States. It was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. So uh, when you come out, I could take you for a tour and we could uh, give you a little bit of a mentorship on retail real estate investing. Yeah. Yeah. Don't come in the wintertime, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael, what's your uh, contact or your website to people get a hold of you? In? My website or our website is uh, concordiarealty.com. That's C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-A-R-E-L-T-Y.com. And if they want to get a hold of us, they can send an email to info. I-N-F-O at ConcordiaRealty.com. Or you just look up Michael Flight. It's, it's spelled like how you think it is. He's Googleable, so. Oh, yeah, you can look up uh, Michael and then Flight, F-L-I-G-H-T. So. All right, well, thanks for coming on, Michael. Well, thank you very much for inviting me, Lane. I appreciate it. All right, take it easy. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.